and welcome to Ye Olde Guide, the podcast guide to the history and heritage of the towns and cities of England, with a competitive twist. Whether you want to be primed for an upcoming trip, know more about England's towns, or gain a new perspective on where you live, this podcast is for you. Think of us part guidebook, part companion, part battle of the towns. I'm Liam McGrath, and together with my old friend and co-host historian Daniel Gooch, we will discuss a town and rate it for interest, influence and importance in four topical areas. In this episode, we've treated ourselves to a trip to Bath. In our first category, Culture, we'll explore a city which provided creative scenery throughout the ages, from Saxon poetry to Jane Austen, Thomas Gainsborough and Les Miserables. For Politics and War, how an event over a thousand years ago provided the blueprint for British coronation ceremonies to this day. In Science and Industry, we'll learn about the first discovery of a new planet in human history and how it happened in a back garden in Bath. Our final category will be a big discussion area today. It's urban heritage. And we'll discover England's most complete Georgian town, world heritage site and the Roman legacy it was built on. As ever, please tweet, email, write to us with your impressions of the podcast but we have loads to talk about in this episode. So let's get going to Bath. Many of our listeners will be familiar with Bath. It's a World Heritage Site. It's one of the most visited cities in the UK. It's quite a small city. You can walk around on foot. It's got about 90,000 residents. Uh, It's nestled in the Avon Valley in the southwest of England, not far from Bristol. Uh, And we managed to beat the tourists by going on a weekday. We were walking around marvelling at this city. Daniel, what was your step count for the day? Uh, My step count was significant, close to 30,000. We did a lot of walking. I'm really excited about this episode. I've had a great time looking at some of the other kind of more modern industrial cities, but this is the first proper touristy historical cities city that's known for its history and its heritage so yeah i'm raring to go on this many of our listeners you will know the origins of bath as a spa town you might even have heard the the roman name aquaesulis i suppose the clue is in the name of the town itself but daniel what's made bath so uniquely significant as a spa in england bath is really interesting as a settlement because it's not your typical ancient town or city it's not very easily reachable the river that goes through it isn't really navigable it's not a particularly easily defensible area it's not on some kind of easily traversable route between any other major cities so there's no natural reason to build a city or a town there except for one and that is a unique geological phenomenon which is the hot water that gushes out of the ground there the spa that exists there It's in a very small area of the city, just 80 metres by 20 metres in area. But there are three hot springs that come up from the limestone underneath the ground on which the city stands. And it's unique because the water is heated to 45 degrees Celsius. No other British spa emerges at such a temperature warmer than the human body. And really it's this, this hot water that gushes out of the ground, which has drawn humans to bath for thousands of years going back even before the roman invasion so other places with spa in the name just not as hot water basically places like buxton just it's not coming out as hot is that that's the main difference yeah geologically yes um 
there is water of course it's the clues in the name but it's much hotter in bath and also bath has taken a kind of a a different turn in history in the way it's grown up as a significant georgian resort town how much roman legacy is there left um well roman bath wasn't a particularly large settlement it was really a kind of um, resort town for Romans as well. We know from archaeological evidence that um, legionaries stationed in Britain, Romano-Britain civil servants, all manner of, of citizen would travel to Bath kind of as a, as a tourist. Um, but there's not a huge amount of Roman Bath left. The main legacy is the Bath itself, but all the architecture around that, including the building itself which surrounds it, is all much more recent. Almost all of the heritage that makes up so much that's wonderful about Bath today is from the Georgian, the Regency period. This is the period when Bath really reached its kind of its peak, when Bath became the premier resort town in the country. Initially, people would travel there to take the waters for their own health, but really it just became initially an upper class, aristocratic, and then a middle class resort town where people would just go to mingle and to have fun, as tourists would do today. Yeah, so I think we're going to be talking a lot about the the Regency period or or the, the Georgian period. Is it is it fair for me to use those terms interchangeably, or does the Regency period really refer to the the, the, the later? I, I have been a bit confused well, by it, this. Regency would technically refer to the time when George the Fourth was the Prince Regent before he became king mm. for his father George the Third. I, th- I think yeah. the point there is George the Fourth was a George and George III was the king. So Georgian would cover that entire expanse up to really when Queen Victoria became queen. Brilliant. So we're going to be talking about that period a lot because it's so significant f- f- for Bath. Could you give us a, like a, a brief overview of some of the big changes that we're seeing in, in cities? The idea I think I want to pin this to is one that the historian Peter Borset has come up with, which is called the English Urban Renaissance. Now, What the English Urban Renaissance really refers to is the sighting of English culture in provincial towns, which is really coupled with a massive rebuilding and architectural growth within provincial towns. And this is centred in lots of them, but most pronounced in resort towns like Bath, like Cheltenham as well, Cheltenham Spartan, of course, Buxton as well, where there was... um, I suppose you would say conspicuous consumption, ostentatiousness of fashion. Really, these were the places where people went to mingle, went to reside. And having the freedom, the time to devote to leisure led to a growth in culture, in tourism and in architecture and urban rebuilding in these places. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about here. Um, I'm really looking forward to going through the categories. What did being a centre of Georgian leisure mean for Bath? Um, What it meant was that the original kind of medicinal attraction of the spa water, as we mentioned earlier, people went for their health, was kind of transformed and people became not just for their, their health, but for the social scene. The balls, the assemblies, the productions, the theatres, that made Bath really the preeminent centre of leisure and networking, first for upper and then middle-class Britons. And of course, one of our greatest observers of um, upper-class and middle-class social scene around this time was Jane Austen, who was probably Bath's most famous resident. 
of course, royalty artists have stayed in Bath. But with Jane Austen, the important thing here is that she stayed there long term and really she uses it as a kind of a centre of observation of English polite society. So Bath not only honed her in informative writing years, it gave her that direct view on her subject and gave her a lived knowledge of it. She was really a master observer of Georgian society and there was nowhere better to observe or to portray this than in Bath, where it was most conspicuously and knowingly displayed. She was a fantastic observer of the sort of the upper classes, the the landed gentry. Yeah. And I, I, I gather two of her novels are actually set in Bath. Uh, yes. Um, the Grand Pump Room is actually in uh, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. It's really set as a place where the fashion would meet. And actually film adaptations of both of those novels have been filmed on location at the Grand Pump Room. Um, the Grand Pump Room is set right above the um, the main spa that's there. And you can do a a tour of the, the Jane Austen uh, lo- locations, I, I understand it. We didn't have a chance to... Yep, you can, as, as well as the Grand Pump Room, you can do the Jane Austen Trail. You can also go to St Swithin's Church, which is just outside the centre, but Jane Austen's parents were married there. It's a lovely little church. And actually, William Wilberforce was married there as well. Lots of big names. And talking of big names, other authors have resided in Bath and vi- visited Bath, perhaps not influenced in quite the same way. I'm thinking of the likes of Shelley. Yeah, so Jane Austen certainly wasn't the only artist to use Bath for kind of a creative backdrop. Richard Brinsley Sheridan, the famous playwright, his play The Rivals, which I think is his most famous one, would probably say, um, was set in Bath at the height of its kind of Georgian fashionability. In Charles Dickens's The Pickwick Papers, Pickwick's servant actually goes and takes the waters. He describes the taste as a very strong flavour of warm flat irons. And I can certainly vouch for the fact it's pretty revolting, but um, that's not the point, of course. It's supposed to heal you. And um, since then, it's been a, a, a film backdrop as well. This kind of unspoilt Georgian architecture has been a really good backdrop for period settings, not just Jane Austen yeah, adaptations, but um, the Duchess from 2008 and famously Les Miserables, where the weir below Putney Bridge provides this kind of dramatic backdrop for Javert's suicide. So the cultural legacy really is dominated by Austin in this Regency period when when anyone who was anyone was was visiting staying in in Bath but uh, let's divert to other periods uh, and I think we need to mention you know as as ye old guide to the history of English cities one of the earliest written depictions of an English town or city uh, yes that's right the ruin the ruin is an old English poem it's from the 8th or 9th century What's really interesting is it portrays an ancient ruined city in England and it compares its former grandeur with the decrepit condition it had fallen to. And that's really interesting to see from a modern perspective. You think of Bath as this grand historic city, but when it was written, you have this former, the former grandeur of Rome, which has been abandoned in the, uh, in the dark ages um, to this kind of early Saxon period when the ruin was written. Um, it's not certain, but expert consensus is that the poem almost certainly does depict Bath. Um, it's been set to a few modern musical adaptations. You can find them fairly easily. But what's most important is, as you said, the poem is one of the earliest literary depictions of an English city that exists. And it's a really striking contrast to this rejuvenated architectural masterpiece that the city has become since it's almost quite a sad it's melancholy it it, it sort of depicts something that's fading 
you know, maybe the sort of maybe it's an obvious just lament of the the Roman legacy disappearing, or maybe it's something a bit deeper about the the transience of buildings and nature eventually taking its way back and urban the inevitability of urban uh, decay. It does reference sort of thermal pools, so it does seem likely that it's that it's bath but but yes as you say not for certain but a fascinating um piece of heritage for the the city i think now before we move on to scores i'm going to indulge you i promise we won't cut this bit out <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to talk a bit about stadiums in bath which are not what i expected but what what's what's special about the the two stadia in in bath um declare an interest i am massively into football stadiums as kind of a personal interest but what i love about bath is you've got two really quirky stadiums there the rugby stadium is probably the most famous one it's not a particularly big ground but it's in the city center and what's interesting about it is the rugby club shares the ground with a cricket club so every summer most of the rugby ground just gets packed away actually packed away the stands despite being pretty large uh, um portable and the cricket club comes out and takes over the ground it means that the ground only has a certain size it can get to and there aren't many decent seats but even the cheap uncovered even the, well, i say cheap even the uncovered seats are not cheap and go for a pretty big premium and the other thing probably my my personal favorite thing about modern bath or modernish bath is the football ground there twerton park now it's not a big ground the club isn't a particularly successful club. It's never been anywhere near the Football League. But this is one of the best surviving examples, if not the best surviving example, of a traditional 20th century English football ground. Terracing on all four sides, a paddock in front of a, a, a tall main stand. Really, if you want to see the conditions in which 20th century Britons watched football, that is, I think, mm. the best place to go this, in this country. A dying breed, dying, a dying architectural thing. It's uh, very sad. We'll 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 have to make a podcast about twentieth century football stadiums at some point. Lots of interesting facts there. And now I think we go on to the scoring. Uh, our first scores for Bath in the area of culture, particularly thinking about cultural legacies and influence. Um, so we've had. The writings of Austin, which strikes me as particularly given that they're set in Bath, numerous references to Bath, and she seems so influenced by Bath. That has to be points for Bath in this scoring round for me. I found something about that poem that uh, that the ruin that did did touch me. So I think that, I think there's stuff there. What do you think? I think there's definitely some important stuff here, as you've said. Bath has got this unique place in popular literary consciousness for that Georgian period. You think of Georgian culture, instantly you think of Bath. And this has come through in the writings of one of our greatest authors. And another thing I'll mention briefly is Thomas Gainsborough, one of our greatest painters. Oh, goodness me, yeah. Lived in Bath, um, became enormously successful there. And you can see many of his paintings in the Victoria Art Gallery today. So there's a, a proper tangible legacy there. I am slightly inclined to see Bath as a bit of a one-trick pony in this category, though. Aside from kind of Georgian novels, it if you're looking at output, it lacks kind of really as a backdrop at best in most other areas. So I think scoring has to be limited there. So I'm I'm going to give it a five and a half. I think it's positive, but but, but capped. I can't believe we nearly missed Gainsborough. 
sons of Ipswich, we we should be uh, we should be speaking for Gainsborough. I'm glad you re- remembered. And I I think when he moved to Bath, he ended up well. He went there because there was lots of work for him, and he ended up doing lots of portraits. And I think he would have been doing preferring to do landscapes. He's got very frustrated um, about the portraits for Richard. Yes, yeah, so I think yeah. for, you know in Suffolk, if you grow up in Suffolk, you see lots of Gainsborough paintings, and they tend to be landscapes. Very nice pieces of work. Um, I agree with you on the the, the the sort of one one dimensional. That almost sounds bad, but it, it isn't. I think it, it it it's just true. But for its era that it represents, it is exceptional. And it, as you say, it's the number one place you think of, um, and. You see that in the, the the culture in the city today. You see it in the kind of activities that you can be involved in when you visit Bath. There's a Mozart festival. There's classical music. There's there's concerts. There's theatre. It's remained there. I think it's true to its values. I don't think it should be any other way. So I'm going to give it a six. Our next category is politics and war. Despite its size in the Regency period and its significance in the cultural sphere, Bath feels politically less prominent. It doesn't feel like it's been involved in the big political and military issues of any era. Nevertheless, you're going to tell me that it has left one major tradition uh, left its mark on one major tradition. Can you tell us about that? I can. Um, I want to paint a, a bit of a picture for you here. At some point in the next few years, it's, it, it's sad, but it's true, the Queen will die and we'll have a new monarch, probably her son Charles, and we'll have a coronation. That coronation will be watched by millions of people around the world. When that happens, when we have that coronation, the ceremony you will be watching will be one where the blueprint was set in Bath in 973 at the coronation of Edgar the Peaceful. Edgar the Peaceful, is that a name you know, Liam? Is he a no, it's not. I'd love to know, why is he Why is he Edgar the Peaceful? That's a very nice sobriquet to have. Well, we'll I hope we'll get, I get a name like that. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll give a very short background on Edgar the Peaceful, also known as Edgar the Peaceable. Um, I think you just pick and choose which. Um He was really one of our greatest monarchs in a very important respect. He is one of the first, arguably the first monarch who was king of all England, by which I mean there were various Saxon kingdoms around that time. But he united all the other kingdoms below him as kind of the the uber monarch, if you like, the arch monarch over all the rest of them. So his reign was peaceful because he was in charge. Quite simply, he was the number one leader. And this is really going back, isn't it? This is 943. Yeah, his coronation was in 973, but he actually became king in 959. Um, back in those days, there wasn't the tradition that you became crowned a year after you became king. It was some, The coronation was something that you planned as a great um, show of pageantry. Um, his, his reign was really successful and stable. But back to the point around Bath, when he ascended the throne and when he became crowned he became crowned said 14 years later the ceremony as recorded in the anglo-saxon chronicle set the basis for the coronation service as it has existed ever since now i'll pick out one probably the key example of what i'm talking about here the choral music at all coronations since then 
has been set to biblical texts first chosen for that ceremony. The one you'll know is Zadok the priest. If listen, if you don't know Zadok the priest, Google it, listen to it. You will know Zadok the priest because it was most famously set to music by Handel for George II's coronation. But despite the music being adapted, the original biblical text, which refers to the, the biblical account of King Solomon's anointing, um, where God saved the kings exclaimed, was first chosen for that ceremony in Bath Abbey in 973. And most fascinatingly, the location of the ceremony, the original Bath Abbey um, location where the coronation was, was rediscovered just last year in 2020, just to the south of the present day abbey, kind of between the street level above and the Roman remains below, as you wait where you'd expect Saxon remains to be. It's incredible. It's incredible we're still finding these things to to this day. That's an, that's an incredible find. Only only last year. That's well, absolutely remarkable. Ab- you don't get to dig an abbey up very often, so the opportunity doesn't oh. come along very often. I suppose not, but that's that's remarkable. So that's uh, that's a type of ceremony we're still doing uh, over a thousand years later. And I think that's absolutely incredible. Right there in the middle of Bath. Now, you mentioned earlier in the introduction that Bath is a a poor defensive location being basically at the bottom of the Avon Valley. So how much military action has it seen? We're going to have to to stretch ourselves a little bit here. Um, if we want to get military action, we're going to have to look at battles that happened around Bath because battle, but Bath was is surrounded by hills. And often there were, well, there were occasionally battles for control of Bath that didn't necessarily take place in Bath itself. Um, the first one chronologically we'll talk about would be the Battle of Baden in around 500 AD. Um, this was a battle between the Anglo-Saxons and the native Britons, which was recorded as having had um, King Arthur, the legendary King Arthur, as oh. a combatant. We have to be very, very careful about this, though. There's no actual proof it was near Bath. It's just a suggested location. So... Bath won't get too many points for this. No, I think we're stretching it a bit here. (laughs) We are, but I can give you something that's a bit more concrete. Brilliant. Centuries later, um, 1643, the Battle of Lansdowne. Lansdowne is just north of Bath, but this was a battle in the Civil War for control of Bath between the two opposing forces. Um, Bath, like many other cities in the Civil War, changed hands several times between the Parliamentarians and the Royalists. Uh, you can actually visit the battlefield today. There's a monument there which marks the place where the royalist commander, Beville Grenville, died. Oh, well, that's more firm. We do like firm facts on ye old guide. We do. That's not even true. We've got lo- we've got loads <laughs> of stories. We did Lady Godiva, for goodness sake. <laughs> um, but go forward to the, to the Blitz, because I think we should mention that despite being so well-preserved today, that, that many buildings were damaged in Bath during the Blitz. There was quite a lot of damage to Bath during the Blitz during the Second World War, yes. Over 400 people in Bath were killed. Over 19,000 buildings were damaged. I had to double-check this number when I read it. Don't, I find that statistic incredible. Well, damage covers a broad spectrum, and mm. there was quite a lot of repair and rebuilding work that went on afterwards. Um the heaviest raids actually took place on the nights of 25th and 26th of April 1942. And what's interesting about these is they were reprisals, direct reprisals on this kind of picturesque but undefended city as Bath was. Reprisals for Allied attacks 
on the medieval German city of Lübeck, which had happened previously. The happy thing from our perspective is that so much did survive, so much was able to be restored or rebuilt, because I often think Bath could so easily have ended up as the Georgian Coventry. If if we'd lost Bath, Mm. how much would that be lamented today? Finally, in this section, we've got a military location on a hill that many of our listeners will have heard of. We have. We're Salisbury Hill, Salisbury Hill near Bath. We are, again, we're indulging ourselves a little bit because it's it, it's a brisk it's a brisk walk from Bath. It's nowhere near the city centre itself. But the reason we've got Salisbury Hill in here is because there's there was an Iron Age hill fort on top of the hill. You can quite easily distinguish this kind of triangle that sits on top of the hill now, which shows you the outline of it. It was constructed sometime between 300 and 100 BC. There was a rampart with dry stone walls surrounding it and some buildings within, but it was burned down in the first century BC. The reason we've indulged this is we just wanted to mention that Peter Gabriel song, Salisbury Hill. Is that one of your favourites, Liam? I know you're a I Genesis like fan. It. I do like Genesis. Uh, I, I, Peter, Peter had left the band and yeah, but yeah. very good song. I'm sure you'll agree. I'm sure our listeners will agree. And if it weren't for the draconian rules on audio clips in podcasts, we would have a we'd play the full bit of it right now. I, th- I think we'll all have heard it in those weird Nespresso adverts with George Clooney that've been on recently. That's right. That's that. <laughs> that's it. Okay, that leads us to the scores. And shall I go? Shall I go first this time? Reveal yeah. my score first. It was I was a bit mean. I put it on you last time because I hadn't made up my mind. No, um, that's fine. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a great deal here, I have to say. I think the coronation story is fantastic. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot else. I can't really think of any major significant battles or political decisions, contributions to the war. You know, like when we went to Coventry, we had all those motorcycles and vehicles being produced for aeroplanes on a vast scale. Here, we haven't got that. And I think that's just because of the nature of the town. It's it's just not built as this big manufacturing hub. So I think in this section, I'm going to give it a three. A three. Okay. Um, I, I agree. The coronation ceremony, that's really the standout legacy here. Aside from that, there's, there's, there's not much to talk about from a political military perspective. I mean, even what military action we've we've got is either mythical or took place near the city rather than in it. You have to expect that because, as you said, the nature of the city is it's a resort town. It always has been some a place people visited for leisure or for healing. It's not built in a defensible location. But I suppose on the political side, I might have expected a major centre of Georgian social networking to have perhaps been a nucleus of soft political power, for there to have mm. been some kind of political development that was perhaps fermented in Bath. But... Mm. There's, it's hard to find much of genuine political significance that ever really happened there. Um, listeners, if we've missed anything, then please, please do tell us. But I, I genuinely couldn't find anything. No, that crossed my mind as well. I wondered whether there'd be some tales of, uh, of espionage or debauchery that might have had some some legacy, some controversy, but, but or, or some whispering, some rumours, some quiet chats in coffee houses. I. I, I thought there might be something like that, but but we're yet to find it. I'm going to give it a two, and that two is almost entirely for the coronation. I just feel a city that's got so much going for it and that's so ancient 
a little bit more could have happened there. But we have three more categories to come, including reality versus expectations. So still time to make the scores up. You wouldn't consider giving an extra half mark for Salisbury Hill? I I think it's it's a bit too much of an indulgence to do that. It is, it is. We'll be setting a precedent. We must preserve the, the accuracy of the scores. So we're going on to science and industry now. As a centre of leisure and culture, perhaps we wouldn't associate Bath with industry or with science particularly. Whilst the wealth of the Regency period came about because of early industrialisation, Bath did not go on to experience the vast urban expansions we associate with the major industrial cities, particularly in the north of England, London, or even nearby Bristol. Nevertheless, Bath does have a very important place in the history of science, in the history of astronomy. My question for you, Daniel, is how many planets have been discovered? How many planets have been discovered? Um, I would say two. That would be my answer. Very good. This man has he, he has read the the rules of the International Astronomical Union, which has demoted poor Pluto. It's no longer a planet, but a minor planet, a dwarf planet. So two only two planets have been discovered. That's right. And, and they are. And listeners, if you're wondering what this has to do with Bath, they are Uranus and Neptune. And the very first of those Uranus was discovered in Bath. So, yes, the very first time in human history that a planet was discovered, it happened in a a garden in Bath. It was discovered by William Herschel. William Herschel was described by Patrick Moore as possibly the greatest observer who ever lived. And that's high praise indeed. That is. If Patrick Moore says it, it must be true. I know he's a personal hero of yours, Liam. And this really was an, an almost unique event in human history. Only twice it ever happened. Um, William lived in Bath with his sister Caroline in the 18th century, discovered Uranus in 1781. Originally, he named the planet Georgia Star. Can you guess who that might have been after, Liam? I I imagine the king. The king, King George III. He's sucking up there to the king. (laughs) Well, his, his argument was that a planet's name should reflect the culture and times of its discovery. So all the other planets have been known since ancient times had ancient names who said, well, it's a modern planet. Let's give it a modern name. But as you can imagine, that term wasn't particularly popular outside Britain. And eventually the alternative classical name of Uranus was adopted universally. I'm sure the French loved the name uh, George Star. <laughs> <laughs> L'Etoile de Georges or whatever. Yeah, they would not have liked, that would not have gone down well. I, I can understand why the, the name was changed. Now, I quite... I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but I do think it's remarkable that he discovered this planet from a street that's now in the middle of Bath. And you'd think that there was lighting in Bath. I checked this. There was an act for street lighting in Bath in the early 18th century. You'd have imagined those oil lamps would have made their bit of a glow and would have made it difficult to do astronomy. But nevertheless, he discovered... Uh, Uranus and indeed lots of other things in astronomy, such as uh, double stars. Um, yeah. and he, he looked at the anatomy of the uh, of the Milky Way. And a lot of astronomy from a street in the middle of a city, a, a busy city, which is, seems remarkable to me. 
Yeah, I have been out and tried to see Uranus from my own back garden before, but um, I've never had any success. So yeah, it seems remarkable to me as well. Even though obviously the level of light pollution would have been far, far lower than you get. Oil, I suppose, oil lamps are, are not not as not as p- p- polluting. The, the other thing that, that I found interesting about that Herschel is that he's like a proper old-fashioned polymath. He came to Bath as a musician. That's why he moved there. He didn't move there for the skies. He moved there to play as an organist and to direct music. And he transitioned into astronomy just out of interest, became um, an expert in the production of telescopes, produced dozens of telescopes and made lots of money selling them with the the support of his his sister, his sister by his side all the time. And he, he went on to make all sorts of discoveries, not only in astronomy, but also in coral. He discovered that coral were, were actually animals. So the man was, an, was, the man was a polymath. And, and, the, and this links back, I think, to the idea of Bath as the centre of cultural life in England. It attracted people in. People may not come specifically for the purpose of astronomy, but they came to Bath because they wanted to be there or because they had another cultural reason similar to Gainsborough. Um, I, I will talk about legacy now. You can actually see the house where Herschel discovered Uranus. You can go to it. It's open as a museum now, it's devoted to him and his sister Caroline, with whom he collaborated. And they've, they haven't got the original telescope he used, but you can see a replica of the one he used to discover Uranus if you go there. So in this podcast episode, we've, we've done some geology. We've done some astronomy. Uh, we're going to move back onto safer ground now. Seems to come up a lot, but the cloth trade. Uh, what's the significance here? The cloth trade. It seems to have been big in every town we've bring done a, so far. Bring us back ages. down to earth. Uh, I, I, we'll give a different angle on it. Yes, Bath did have a pretty successful medieval cloth trade. But there's there's a bit of an interesting literary legacy from this, because this was a key inspiration for the character of the wife of Bath in Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. She was one of Chaucer's best developed and really most intriguing characters. She could have come from any town, but the reason she was given Bath as her hometown was to emphasise the fact that she was a wealthy, independent cloth merchant from an increasingly prosperous city. So rooting her in Bath kind of rounded out her character um, in a way that Chaucer's audience would understand very readily. Are there any other notable industrial legacies? Not much to say on manufacturing or heavy production. There's There have been some minor successful businesses, you know, plasticine, furniture production, brass, dye works. Um, But really, since the Industrial Revolution, Bath has mainly sustained its wealth and growth through tourism and cultural pursuits. But I suppose there's perhaps something to be said for these themselves, for kind of Bath's almost pioneering role in service industries. Of course, service industries, although that does have a very specific meaning today, we have to be careful of, are the backbone of the British economy today. They employ 80% of the country contribute a similar proportion of GDP. And if you look at Bath's role as a resort town, you can see this kind of similarly service-dominated economy from the outset of its industrial era rebirth as a resort town. If you look at the consumption that went on there, from ostentatious clothing to temporary accommodation, social events, Georgian Bath was a town where consumption itself really overtook bare subsistence as Mm. the primary form of work. I think you're absolutely right to highlight it because hospitality and leisure alone is a huge component of modern GDP and modern employment. So it is a huge legacy, Bath having the spas, but equally it could be going to the sea. We we often think of the sea and I suppose Bath's Regency rival is Brighton. 
um, for that. But then later in the Victorian age, the seaside resorts, this idea of going somewhere, staying in accommodation, people cooking delicious food, entertaining you, music, theatre, uh, consumption, that seems to be something that where Bath was a major trailblazer in the in the modern era and i suppose what you can see there is a progression from it just being a, an upper class aristocratic pursuit to being a middle class pursuit in bath later on and then of course bath didn't really make the transition to being a, a working class um, resort town once the working class has gained more leisure time and more leisure money it was more the seaside resorts as you pointed out which which took that but it's still a, an, imp- an important point there so i think that takes us on to the scores it does okay i suppose I'll, I'll go for, I'll go first then. I suppose one significant challenge for Bath is really to point out anything that's particularly tangible in the inputs and outputs of its contribution. Um, Francis Pryor, who is a, an archaeologist, um, I think a fantastic history writer. People might remember him from Time Team back in the, in the day on Channel 4. He's got this fascinating idea that Bath was this kind of business networking centre in Georgian times. Um, they say that business is done on the golf course. And I think this is the idea that he has, that people didn't just go to Bath to, you know, to gossip people and to have fun. People went to gossip to meet new business acquaintances, to make new business deals and to network from a business perspective as well as a personal perspective. I think that's a fascinating idea. I struggle to put anything that's tangible on that, though, to show anything that's come out of it. Other things, you know, Herschel's discovery of Uranus is monumental. You could perhaps critique that Bath almost might have been incidental as a backdrop because it didn't provide the training and educational required to make his observations for any kind of great academic institution. Um, There were various commercial public lectures. There were philosophical and scientific institutions. But I don't think any really set the world alight because... I think you have to say, ultimately, Bath was more a place for relaxing than working. But he was there, wasn't he, because it was this centre. And, you know, like you were talking about before, the work being done through conversations that happened in Bath, whether it was about business or it was about society, Mm -hmm. those conversations and that atmosphere, as well as the music, I mean, he went there to earn money as a musician, that would have attracted him to Bath in the same way as successful cities attract young entrepreneurs or modern polymaths or whatever they are today they're attracted to certain parts of the world perhaps that that bath's status at the time and what it offered was was what attracted herschel i suppose Um, what i'm trying to do is balance out between great things that happened there and happened there for a reason and maybe great kind of cultural and scientific institutions that brought people in for that specific purpose and provided that training and that learning and those opportunities i think that that's what i'm trying to do say mm, bath no, was bring mm. people in but not necessarily providing the means and the opportunity in a direct way for these things to happen but, but I, I suppose i i i am perhaps setting the bar a bit too high um you know, the key tangible elements of bath scientific and industrial past and its progressive service industry the discovery of uranus we, we said absolutely monumental in human history they're both preserved today in the city's physical environment you have the fashion museum in bath you have the great great georgian architecture which has been handed down to us you have herschel's um astronomy museum and this commitment to heritage to preserving the past really is unique to bath so for that reason 
I, I'm going to increase. I was going to be a low score, but I'm going to increase it because of that commitment to heritage for what it has. Mm. So I'm going to give it a four. Okay, that's not too bad. I, I'm also giving it four. Uh, the it definitely gets points for Uranus, but I suppose it's it's lacking for me the later dimensions of industrial growth, particularly the the main period of industrial production. It's lacking those bigger scientific wider trade influences it doesn't have this big material trade exports that we've seen in other cities um, and there's not much of a post georgian industrial legacy to see there's the canal and the locks which are which are nice that's good to see but there's and then there's some wharfs but not much um, very small compared to other cities that we visited so i'll be going with a four Now we're on to the big one for Bath, urban landscape, and it's hard to know where to start. But let's set some context. In the Georgian era, nearly every town in the UK was experiencing unprecedented growth and expansion. We see this in all the major cities. The standout cities, though, are the likes of Bath, the Edinburgh New Town, the reconstruction of Dublin city centre, parts of Bristol and Liverpool and of course the uh, the the John Nash designed uh, avenues through the west end of London some of the most famous streets in London today such as Regent Street we saw this as a period of great urban expansion cities doubling in size over over the course of just a few a few decades and this was up and down the land as we saw this migration into cities lots of cities expanded in this area and many have wonderful architectural legacies. But what gives Bath its unique, impressive Georgian architectural heritage? I think its architectural exceptionalism today results from the fact that so much has survived in a specific period style, in a specific material, almost without destruction, almost without being overlaid. Bath is often described as a planned city. And when you go there, you do get a sense of a single architectural vision for the city. And the fact that the local Bath stone, this wonderful honey-coloured material, is used so much gives it that, I hesitate to say homogeneity. But when we say Bath is a planned city, we have to step back from the pejorative term, the pejorative connotations of that term today. Today, that suggestion of post-war, tedious brutalism, uniform homes, identical mm. shops, grid patterns. Really what planning means in Bath is that there is this uniform architectural vision, these neoclassical Palladian ideals. It's not planned in the same way that, say, Hausmann's Paris was. It's not planned in the same way as many other continental cities were, because it wasn't built to one specific plan. Instead, there were, what I'd say, Palladian ideals. Palladianism is this specific form of neoclassical design, which is a reaction to the English Baroque style. English Baroque and Neo and Palladian are both neoclassical both adhered to kind of roman and greek principles the difference really was the english baroque movement which preceded it was very ornate if you think of st paul's cathedral our most famous english baroque building in this country it's it's so intricate flamboyant i like to use the word twirly actually there aren't straight lines there's so many twirls and curls and such roundness about it if you look at bath the palladism shines through in the fact that you've got the pillars, you've got the straight lines, but you've got the bare, clean lines of the uh, the pediments as well. 
the Hoban Museum, I think, is probably the, the best example I can think of in my mind at the moment for seeing that. The Hoban Museum is almost symmetrical. It's clean, it's clear, it's straight. This is really the neoclassical principle to which Bath was was designed. And when we say planned, we have to step away from that idea of Bath as being either boring or Bath as being built in one single go to one single design. It was the fact that it was built piecemeal over an extended period of several decades, but to these architectural principles, which still led to you know, great variation in, in the layout mm. of its streets and its, its buildings. It's expanded in piecemeal planned sections with some principles to the design, but not to the extent of being you know, fully fully determined by some grand um, city vision. And if you mentioned in Paris, you could you could talk about Cerda's Barcelona extension. Now you've mentioned Holborn House; that's one of the finest. Let, let's talk through some of the other major architectural set pieces. And we we did some fantastic walks, starting from Queen Square, which is a stunningly uh, laid out square, up Gay Street, which takes you up the hill, and that leads you to the Circus. So we talk a bit about the Circus. The Circus, if we if we can describe it for anyone who's who's not been there or seen this, is this. I'd say really staggering circle of housing, which was built in stages between 1754 and 1768. And when you're there, you are actually surrounded by this vast circle of tall housing around you. And I think what strikes you about it, it's not just the kind of all encompassing circling nature of it. It's how striking and obvious the neoclassical design is there. You've got the three fully enclosed tiers of Doric, Ionic and Corinthian pillars. These are the three major orders of um, classical architecture in, in, in pillar design. And this is drawn directly from the Colosseum in Rome. It almost is like being in a kind of this miniature suburban version of the Colosseum, I found. And I suppose it's a great vista because it's got three entrances to the circus. So as you enter, you don't see another exit. Mm. So you do feel this sense of enclosure and I suppose as we're at the circus, you walk along and just a few minutes walk away is the Royal Crescent. This bears some similarities to the circus in its design. It's almost like a semicircle. It's it's vast. This enormous sweeping facade sweeps round as you're standing in the park that's in front of it. Um, if you visit, quite interestingly, number one, the Royal Crescent has actually been converted into a museum. This was the original show house, and I think the first building constructed of the Crescent, which was built in, in stages like the circus. If you move beyond the Royal Crescent as well, um, we, we can't possibly talk about all the buildings in Bath because there are so many, but ones to draw out are the Grand Pump Room mm. and the Assembly Rooms. Both these buildings were centres of Georgian social life, which still welcome visitors today in exactly the same buildings. It's worth saying as well on that topic of, of the, the planned nature of the buildings. When you look at the circus or the Royal Crescent or Great Pulteney Street from the way they're intended to be viewed, they look very uniform. Now, actually, when you, on closer inspection, you can see differences between the buildings, but, but generally there's this uniform presentation. But we took some walks behind the buildings, and, and I think if you're an intrepid flaneur, that's well worth doing because you can then see the individualism of the buildings. They look much more chaotic, uh, much more of a hodgepodge when you go behind the buildings because they were all individually constructed, individually owned and that, then they have this this individual style. Now, I mentioned Great Pulteney Street, so that, that brings us really onto the Pulteney Bridge. This, again, is just quite exceptional. Pulteney Bridge is very nearly one of a kind, 
Um, it's one of only four bridges in the world which has shops on both sides. This was a feature which was actually much more common historically. Um, it, the principle is actually quite similar to how the original medieval London Bridge was, would have been arranged. If you ever seen any pictures or renderings of the original medieval London Bridge, there were buildings stacked up on both sides of it. Of course, that would have been much more ramshackle, but that, that principle still stands. As you say, we could talk for ages about the terraces and crescents which sort of sweep up the hills in Bath and we, we tried to explore as many as we could and you, you can walk around for a long time and it's worth climbing up some of those hills to, to enjoy the vistas. And But most of these from the Georgian era, or nearly all are from the Georgian era, but what other architectural periods are represented in Bath? It's been there for 2,000 years. What, what else have we, we got? Pre-Georgian, um, very little, very little indeed. The most prominent remnant of pre-Georgian Bath is going to be the Abbey Church, which is right in the centre of the city. But this is actually quite quite small, as um, old cathedrals go. And it actually replaced a much larger abbey building, which was constructed as a cathedral in the 12th century. Now, this old abbey building, or cathedral as it was at the time, became surplus to requirements when the seat of the bishop moved to Wells, the Bishop of Bath and Wells. If you've ever watched Blackadder, that's a character you'll know. Now, the church became really run down and was rebuilt on a much smaller, more manageable scale in 1500. And the style it was built to was the perpendicular Gothic style. So you have a sense of what we mean by this. It's the last kind of flourishing of the original medieval Gothic style. And it's it's characterised by long tall lines long thin lines going upwards if you're looking at them you look at perpendicular lines going up ahead of you faces of perpendicular gothic buildings will often have long thin windows towering up above towers will have points on the top pushing up so everything is kind of long thin lines directing your view upwards and it was actually a fairly regressive move because the rest of the of europe was already moving on with neoclassical designs but despite the contraction in stature the archaic style, there are some dis- distinctive features to the Abbey. There's the depiction of Jacob's Ladder on the west front, the really breathtaking fan-vaulted ceiling inside, which was heavily restored by the Victorians. And as a bit of trivia for you, um, the church has more plaques and monuments on its walls, around 640, than any other British church except Westminster Abbey, despite being that much smaller. And the area around the Abbey as well, you can see the various planned developments of Bath's streetscape there. Is there anything left that we can see of the original Roman Baths? So what you can see now, really all you can see is the Roman bath itself. And what I mean by the bath is the pool of water. If you go to the pump rooms, it's surrounded by this almost neo-ruin, I'd, I'd, I'd possibly call it, of a building you feel when you're walking around the pool itself when you paid to go in and visit it that you're walking around a roman ruin and many visitors are fooled into thinking the building itself is originally roman but actually it's only the pool itself which is originally roman and actually this was the case up until i think elizabethan times until elizabethan times the pools in Bath, although there was a bit of a rekindling of them in the Middle Ages, were still just open pools with no buildings around them. Anything that you see built around the Roman Bath is a much later kind of Georgian addition. And to, to this day, the the Georgian Bath and the remnants of what the Roman pool is open to visit. So you can visit, you've mentioned you visited. If you actually want to go in a bath, 
if you want to test the hot springs, there's there's also the fantastic modern baths. I think it was designed by Nicholas Grimshaw. And that's, that's a stunning building, well worth seeing, which brings us really on to modern architecture, because whilst the, the modern bath is a, a real triumph of of sensitive modern construction in in the in the world heritage site that has not always been the case in the 20th century and one thing we were looking at when we were researching the podcast is divisive architecture of the the late 20th century there's this concept of the sack of bath i know you've got an interesting book on this liam the sack of bath is the name given to you probably say some pretty shocking redevelopment of the city centre in the 1960s and 1970s, which is becoming a a bit of a familiar theme on this podcast. Mm. The reason it was particularly sensitive in Bath was the fact that you were knocking down our heritage. It wasn't some grimy Edwardian edifice from only half a century ago. Um, One of the most infamous additions was the Southgate shopping centre. This building was actually knocked down to, you know, no lamentation whatsoever, and replaced in 2007 by a brand new Southgate Centre, which is one of the first buildings you encounter when you arrive on the train. And this centre is enclosed in these kind of mock Georgian facades. The replacement has won architectural awards since it opened. Um, It kind of epitomises, I think, the recent developments in Bath City Centre. You've got tight planning controls, which have led to this revival of Bathstone and the original the Georgian Palladian design ideals to try and ensure this harmony within the city. It's not without controversy. There are people who moan about the fact that reclaimed Bathstone is used in the new designs. Reclaimed Bathstone being where it's ground up and then kind of reformed into new blocks. If I'm honest, there are parts of the city where this has happened where you could feel a bit like you're in some kind of fake Disneyland area, if I can put it that way. It does feel a bit reconstructed. Mm. But I suppose you have to ask what what better could they do what choice have you got that rule the planning rule that it has to be bath stone it's worked in the sense that every building has retained that yellow appearance but it's a bit strange when it's sort of applied to a a sort of 1960s style tower block of housing or or multi-story car park And and i suspect that's where the the critique is that it just it feels odd and rather fake because it doesn't disguise the the discontinuity in the architecture but I think the real critique of those areas of comprehensive development in Bath was that whilst the buildings that were being taken out were the lower quality buildings on the whole, so they would have been artisan housing, possibly not always fit for modern use, although that, that seems remarkable now. We seem to be able to restore any building these days. But at the time, perhaps it was considered too expensive. But the loss of those buildings sort of leads to breaks in the continuity of the city, in the cohesiveness that we discussed earlier. And I think that's the that's the damaging legacy. But as I understand it, it could have been a lot worse. The heritage movement stepped in before some really destructive urban motorway through the city going through a tunnel, but then around the bend of the river, which would have been awful. And ultimately, once the city received almost blanket UNESCO World Heritage Site status. It's now protected. So I think we've covered a lot there on Bath's urban heritage. That leads us to scores. And wow, it feels like this could be a high-scoring round. I I think it probably is. Uh, Would you like the honour of going first? I think there is no city in Britain that has such consistent, coherent architecture of one era that displays such a wealth of 
high standard architectural design. There are many cities in Britain that have a large number of buildings of great architectural significance, but none present them in the coherent way that Bath does. I think the only serious contender would be Edinburgh and the British Isles for its new town, which is which is complete. But Bath, the entire city, is complete and largely unspoiled. It has urban planning which has survived as a, an attraction for people from around the world to this day. People flock to Bath for its architecture. I believe it's in the top 10 most visited cities in the country. And that is largely for its Georgian Regency architecture. So I can't see many cities that are going to score higher than this. So on that basis, I'm giving it a nine. The one point it's lost is that I have two angles at this. It might have lost points from me due to lack of diversity. I like to see different architectural styles in a city. But I feel that because Bath has made its bed, it is unapologetically of one style of one era. And it does it well. I'm not going to mark it down for that. So the one mark lost is because of some of the 20th century modifications. Although they are relatively minor, I don't think they're anything as bad as they were. I think the Southgate sense that you've mentioned has removed some of the most egregious damage. But that's where the mark comes from. So I, w- I will be giving it a nine. Nine is a very good score. That may- Is that the highest we've had for anything so far? It may well be. And um, There's one of your points I wanted to come back to, actually. You, you were talking about other cities which have this same kind of harmony about its about their architecture and their urban heritage. The one other that sprung to my mind was Aberdeen um, mm. with, of course, the granite that's been used there. And there are similarities there in the kind of the uniformity of the Bath stone and the colour um, that gives to Bath's building. Um, I am going to dwell on one of the criticisms you made, which is that the city is so uniform in its style um, and so little medieval architecture get survived this great Georgian rebuilding. I mean, the medieval city walls were just torn down. There's only one very small gateway which survives. And, and, and quite interestingly, there you can see just how far below the modern street level it is. It shows you just how much was the city was built up physically, how much taller it was made, how much higher it was made by the great Georgian rebuilding. Because this can give the impression to modern eyes that the city never really existed before then. And this isn't really true. There was plenty of tourism to Bath, plenty of people going on there between the Roman and the early modern era. The Baths were frequented by royalty famous courtiers, Charles II, his wife and and two of his mistresses. He had quite a lot of those. Elizabeth I, um, some of hers courtiers, including Walter Raleigh. But I suppose there's an interesting point to be made here about surviving tangible heritage influences our perception of a place's history we see the georgian architecture so we think of bath as a georgian city and obviously it was if more of the medieval architecture survived i think we might appreciate a little bit more of um how important and significant a place it was in the middle ages as well that's the nitpicking out of the way you know there there isn't the architectural variety you might get somewhere like york you know bath's harmonized period construction in local stone offers something that I think is pretty unique in this country. So I'm going to live with the modern construction because there are so few places where something like that hasn't happened worse. So I'm going to give it a nine as well, knocking a point off, but for a slightly different reason. You spoke about how the, the Regency architecture wiped out the medieval city. And this is common in many 
that many cities had these kind of comprehensive developments. I think Exeter lost all of its... It was the fashion at the time to remove what were considered to be winding, inefficient, dirty streets and replace them with wider streets, lighting, what was more modern infrastructure. The interesting point for me is that now, in the modern era, since the Georgian era, as far as I can tell, people have appreciated that architectural style in a way that other architectural revisions in cities have not been. If people were asked to pick their favourite architectural set pieces in Britain, I imagine many of them will talk about Bath, many of them will talk about Edinburgh Newtown, Regent Street, these Georgian constructions. It feels to me like the architecture of that period was just very good and Mm -hmm. people have liked it in complete contrast to what we were talking about the post-war where so much of what was built only generation ago is now being removed and replaced with something else. And we'll be talking a lot about that when we go to Birmingham, uh, when Mm. we go to Portsmouth, when we went to Coventry. That era, the architecture and the planning has not stood the test of time in a way that Georgian architecture and planning, for whatever reason, really has. I suppose Georgian architecture was the first that was solid form in kind of your run-of-the-mill urban construction, by which I mean medieval architecture has lasted, but it tends to be the grander buildings. Mm. It tends to be the palaces. It tends to be the churches and the cathedrals. Smaller domestic buildings survive as a one-off. They don't survive in huge streets or in huge kind of harmonious whole areas as much as, as Georgian buildings would. So I think, yeah, the fact it stood the test of time is as much a testament to its, you know, its durability of construction as its aesthetics. We're on to the reality versus expectation round. This is where we give a town a score to, this is to level things up. Mm. Somewhere like Bath is exactly what this system is for because everyone knows Bath. There's a great expectation that Bath is going to be scoring highly in the other rounds, particularly in urban heritage and architecture. But does it live up to the expectations? Let's say from the outset, we all know Bath is great. Go there, full stop. It's it's one of the most popular tourist cities in the country for, for a reason. That's why it's so expensive. That's why it's packed on summer weekends, but it's absolutely worth your time visiting. So with that in mind, it is, I suppose, tricky for Bath to exceed our expectations. But frankly, it comes very, very close, if not doing so architecturally. For anyone with an interest in period architecture, urban heritage, or even Georgian culture, you could not think of a better place to go. And I think if you go, however much you prepare yourself, you will be stunned by what you see there. So where could it do better? I feel like I'm in a year-end work appraisal here. (laughs) It could perhaps have more to do if wandering the streets, taking the buildings isn't your thing. If you compare it with those other major tourist cities in England, and it's in the top 10, so we're going to do that, it is perhaps a tad lacking in major showpiece museums or attractions. Um, you know, historical purists may not like this, but you know, while I would certainly go for a day out, I'm not certain it will be top of my list to take my young daughter to. I'm not sure it'd be at the very top of the list for anyone who's only got a casual interest in architecture or in history. Although why someone's such a person will be listening to a history podcast, I don't know. Um, but you know, 
please, please don't take a negative view away from this. You know, we're playing the game with these scores. Honestly, it's as wonderful a place in England as you can get to see England as it used to be. And we we are tremendously lucky that the city still exists in its current form. I think you're right. It does meet your expectations. I must confess, when I first went to Bath years ago, I was worried. I was worried it wouldn't be as good as it was made out to be in the pictures. But actually it is. There's lots more of that fantastic Regency architecture than we've discussed and it just goes on. And the way that it undulates with the hills. But I wonder, if I was spending more than a day there, I wonder how long I would last. I think I'd be visiting the museums that are there. I mean, there's there's theatres, there's there's classical music. I, I, I can't imagine being there for more than a few days. I suppose if you look at the other cities on that list of the top 10 most visited cities in England, they tend to be the big places. They tend to be you know, London, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, and you are going to get a bit more of that, that cultural stuff. So it's perhaps to some extent a function of it just being a smaller place. Its population is, as you said at the beginning, only 90,000. That is not a particularly large city. Um, it, I think, will be the smallest place we've been to so far, actually, um, despite its great scores. And if I'm going to put a number on it, I have to say, despite my high expectations, it did exceed them. I had a, a great time there. Um, it really is a great place to go to. So I'm going to give it a positive score. For me, it's going to be a six and a half. I'm going to give it a six. Overall, uh, Bath has scored 55 today out of 100. For our ending quiz today, Liam, I'm going to focus on the the Roman era. Ah, oh, brilliant! What I, I do love these quizzes. It's my favourite part of the show. Ro- Roman era. Okay, this should be a challenge. Well, that's okay. It's about Roman Britain, and what I'm going to do is read out to you the names in Latin of five English towns or cities. They're all towns or cities which still exist, but you have okay. to tell me what they are. Okay, I'll give you the Latin oh, name. Good. You have to give me the name that we would understand it by. Okay. We'll start off with a nice easy one. Camelodonum. Oh, well, I know that one. That one is Colchester. Absolutely. Sorry, I should have said Camelodonum before we uh, get Latin. Oh, oh good. Completing. good. Yeah. Colchester, which was really important Roman centre, but was completely burnt to the ground by Queen Boudicca, as I understand it. So, number two. Slightly more difficult, this one. Eborakum. I believe that is York. That is indeed York. Uh, The city where I believe Constantine the Great was proclaimed emperor. And we'll be going to York as well. We we will. There's another theme here. Upcoming episode. Now, uh, I won't give you Aquae Sulis because that would be far too easy, given what we've just covered. I'll give you another Aquae. I'll give you Aquae Arnimetii. It's a spring. It's a bath. So I'm going to have to go... I'm just going to have to guess another spa town, so I'm going to go with Buxton. It is Buxton. Fantastic. Buxton! Ah, oh, Incredible. Lucky. lucky there. Incredible. Three out of three so far. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to pick, pick some obscure ones. I was going to give you Londinium, but... Um... Oh, I don't think you need to give me Londinium. Here's one. Uh, Diva Victrix. Oh, well, I know that one as well. That's Chester. That is Chester. So you want... Bit of a cheat, that one, because we've, we've been researching Chester, haven't we, for a future episode? Oh, we, we have. That's true. Right. So you've got four, four, out of, four out of four so far. 
I'm going to have to make this last one more difficult. A real stinker. Let's go for this one. Mamuchium. Huh? I, I feel like there's a. It's leading me to Manchester, but I, I think that's a trick. So I, I'm not going to put Manchester because Manchester. I don't believe there was any Roman city at Manchester. I don't know. So I'm going to go Dover. Now, if I gave you the alternative name of this former Roman fort, which was okay. Mancunium. Ah. Oh. Oh. Would that change your mind back to Manchester? Yes, it would. Yes. I'll go back to Manchester, please. Absolutely. It's a former Roman fort in Castlefield in Manchester. What? I find that incredible. That was perhaps a tad obscure. So looking at a fort there rather than necessarily the beginnings of the city as it is at the moment. Um, but I had to make that one a bit harder because you were doing so well. But four out of five, that is an absolutely fantastic effort. Well done. And lots of places that we're looking forward to visiting as well. Absolutely. And just before we leave you, as we publish this episode, a new attraction opens in Bath, the House of Frankenstein. Mary Shelley wrote the trailblazing gothic horror and science fiction novel whilst lodging adjacent to Bath's pump room. We mentioned that earlier. Dr Frankenstein's monster was inspired by ghost tales exchanged with Lord Byron whilst cooped up beside Lake Geneva in 1816. This was the year without a summer when the eruption of Mount Tambora, Indonesia, shrouded the world in ash and misery. Shelley wrote the masterpiece in Bath, and this new immersive museum is yet another reason to visit. But that's all we have time for today. Our website is jammed full of more information about Bath and other cities we've visited, so please check it out. It's at yeoldieguide.com. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please contact us via the website or leave the podcast a review. Next time, there'll be more Romans, more remarkable buildings, as we're off to Chester. See you there.